Well, hey, everybody. So good to see you. Thank you for being here. And I tell you, wasn't that phenomenal worshiping with For King and Country? It was fantastic. If those guys could sing better, that'd be awesome, wouldn't it? Uh, seriously, I, I look at. I've always been impressed with their talent, with the passion they bring to their platform, with how they lead in worship. And you, you might not know tonight they're going to be in concert here at Northridge Church. And I know that almost all the tickets are gone, if not all of them. But you can go to an online site and see if you can still get one. We'd love to have you here if you can. They're phenomenal. But but what here, here's what's impacted me getting to know them this weekend. They their hearts. You know, a lot of time you can be traveling and being in, you know, ministry and, and, you know, doing your job, but you don't really have a heart for things outside of that. A lot of times people will do concerts, and when they're not doing concerts, that's all they want. But I'm going to tell you, they actually asked us if they could serve as our volunteer worship team here at Northridge this weekend. Doesn't that say something about their heart? I mean, that's awesome. And we had to say, you mean by volunteer, free, right? Free. And said, yeah, we're, we're all into that. They love the church. They care about that. And then we told them, well, at Northridge, we have four weekend services. They said, never mind. Uh, no, they, they actually went forward. It just says something about their heart. And I appreciate so much that they're serving God. And more than that, they love his church. And if you're a guest, we just want to welcome you to Northridge. We're so glad that you're here this weekend. And we hope that what God is doing through this spiritual community of believers will impact you. You know, we're not perfect people. We're a bunch of flawed and broken and messed up people, but all of us have experienced the redemptive work, the, re- the repairing work of Jesus in our lives, and it's just changed who we are. And we hope that if you've not yet met Jesus, that experiencing him in this community will make you want to know if he's real for you. And I can tell you from first-hand information that he is. One of the neat things that I have the privilege of doing is I have the privilege of getting to know people at every end of the spectrum of the spiritual journey. I, I, I love being with skeptics and cynics because I am one by nature and used to just deny the whole God thing. Religion really messed me up early and I wanted nothing to do with him. I blamed God for religion, right? I blamed God for what people did and... And I, I, today even, I get to be, a lot of them come here, skeptics, cynics who haven't bought into the whole God thing yet, and, and yet I know what they're looking for, and they're passionate about finding something that's missing in their life. And then I get to know people who first come to faith. They're brand new in the journey of faith, and they're all excited about it. They have more passion than knowledge, and they're growing, and it challenges me that way. And then there are people who have been long time in the faith. Some get derailed, others are faithful, and, and yet at the heart, I find that Wherever we're at in the spiritual journey, we kind of resonate around some of the same questions. And one of the questions that I find that most of us have in this spiritual journey we're on, wherever we're at, is, is the idea that it seems like God is different today than he was in the days of the Bible. I mean, people start getting to know and hear about what God did in a couple of people's lives in the Bible, like Moses parting the Red Sea and David taking down Goliath and Elijah doing great miracles. And it's like, you know, they they basically go, where's that God? I mean, where is he? Why, Why aren't we experiencing 
that kind of profound presence and power of God in our world like they experienced it in their world. And I have to tell you, that's an important question. It's a great question. It's a question that I've had to wrestle through for most of my spiritual journey. And so to help me to overcome that idea, I've done a ton of studying and a ton of thinking and a ton of praying on that thing. Where are you, God? Have you changed? Is, I mean, are you no longer capable of doing these things or no longer willing to do these things? I mean, why is it so different today than it was then? And, and, and what I've discovered is that my thinking has been wrong. The way I'm seeing it has been wrong. I, I've, I've come to realize that it's not really that much different today than it was in Bible days. It's really not. Oh, it's true that he's not parting the Red Sea anymore, but really there was only one exodus and one time when they were standing in front of the Red Sea and he had to part the Red Sea. That was a one-time deal. It's, you know, it's not like he needs us to build an ark like Noah anymore. I mean, there was one flood. Now we've got the rainbow thing. Probably no more arks needed. And so it, But yet he's still working in the same exact way he did back then. Just think about it if you would. There were multitudes of people walking on the planet in those days and just like today, very few of them experienced God in amazing ways. I mean, for every Moses and David and Elijah, there were millions of others who never saw or experienced God's miraculous work. There were millions of others who never experienced the overwhelming and real touch of God in their lives. And sadly, the same thing is true today. I believe this weekend's truth in this series we're calling Origins really gets at the answer to why that is. Why so few people ever experience the profound reality of God working in and through and around their lives. And here's the truth. The degree of our obedience ultimately determines the degree to which we experience God's blessings in our life. The degree of our obedience is what ultimately determines the degree to which we experience God's blessings in life. And by God's blessings, I mean the very things we look for in God, the things that we see a couple of key people in the Bible experiencing, his presence and his power and his promises and his provision and even his pleasure. I mean, if we're going to experience those in a very real way, it's going to stem from obedience. And the Bible has always said this. I could literally sit here and the whole hour just read verses that say that thing. But let me just give you a couple. Look at Psalm 119, verses 1 and 2. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless. That word blessed means content, living life to the full, experiencing life as God designed it, experiencing his outpouring in their lives like so many of us long for. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless who walk according to the law of the Lord. They walk in full obedience to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes, who keep his commandments, who seek him with all their heart. Look at Joshua 1.8. Do not let this book of the law, the scripture, the Bible, depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night. Just let it saturate every part of your being. And here's why. So that you may be careful to do everything written in it. You need to know the whole of God's word so that you can obey the whole of God's word. And when you do live to that degree of obedience, it says, then you will be prosperous and successful. Then you'll experience the outpouring of God's power and presence and promises and provision in your life. And then Jesus, look at Luke chapter 11, verse 28. 
He replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Every one of those passages is simply declaring this truth. The degree of our obedience to God determines ultimately the degree to which we experience his reality in our lives. So the reason so few experience God and his blessings in such profound ways in any generation, in the Bible generation or today's generation, is because so few obey God in a profound way. The question is not where is he, the question is where are we? The question is not what's wrong with God these days. The question is, is the same thing wrong with us that has been wrong with so many people down through the corridors of history that they're just living in disobedience? And since Origins is all about going back to the setting where these stories unfolded, we're going to, we're going to take you on a journey back to two particular places that really help show this truth where most people just never experience God in any kind of real way at all, but a couple people do. And, and we're going to show you the negative example of the truth and then the positive. For the negative example of the truth, we're going to go all the way back to Megiddo. This is Megiddo. This is one of the oldest cities in the world. Of course, what happens is people start to settle in very strategic areas. And this place is one of those strategic locations. If someone wants to take the region, then they have to come through here. So it's a place where a military army has an advantage. Battle after battle after battle, civilization after civilization has been here. In fact, it's 26 layers deep of one civilization after another building on this place. And it has great value in the end because it's referred to in the great prophecy of the Revelation, Armageddon. It's been a place of battle from the very beginning and in the end it will be a battle where Jesus wins. But along the way in its history, Israel, as God promised, overcame and conquered this land and Solomon was the king. The problem is that though Solomon was the wisest man ever to live, according to the Bible, he didn't apply his wisdom to his obedience. The site where I'm standing right now is a site of horse stalls. There were like 425 horse stalls. And, and it says in the Bible that Solomon collected 12,000 horses. God said, don't collect horses because it's not with horses and chariots that you win war, but it's by trusting me. He got them from Egypt. God said, never send your people back to Egypt, but Solomon did it. God said, don't collect wives like human kings, pagan kings do. And he collected hundreds and hundreds of wives and, and other women on top of that. Slowly but surely, he stopped trusting God. And as a result, he stopped obeying God. And he started losing all of the experiences of God's promises in his life. And the same thing can happen to us. There's an old saying that rabbis use, and it starts with a question. Do you want to be wiser than Solomon? And of course we do. To which the rabbi says, then obey. Megiddo, we have the example of Solomon and his stables, his horse stalls. 
And it's very interesting because it seems pretty innocuous. I mean, kings have horses, right? Kings do this kind of thing. In 1 Kings 4.26, if you didn't know any better, you'd think that makes sense. He's a king. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses and 12,000 horses. Makes sense. He was a great king. In 1 Kings 10.28, it says Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt. Makes sense because at the time, Egypt had the best horses. If you're going to be the greatest king, you have to have the best horses and the most amount of them. I mean, this just all makes sense. You read through it and you go, no big deal. It makes absolute sense. It's logical until you read Deuteronomy 17.16, which was the law established for the king before he ever did any of these things. It says, the king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get those horses. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. You don't have to go back to Egypt and trust Egypt. You can trust me. And so God said, I don't want you collecting horses and I don't want you going to Egypt for horses. And so what did Solomon do? He went back to Egypt and he collected horses. What is that? It's disobedience. His problem was he allowed himself to make these little compromises. I have a really good friend who travels with us to Israel uh, and he, he, he likes to say that there are some people who live one click off. Solomon was one click off. And one click led to another click led to another click. And it all started with disobedience. His level of knowledge was greater than his level of obedience. He knew God's truth. He just chose not to live all of God's truth. And as a result of it, he didn't experience all there was to experience of God. It's actually what many of us experience. Less of God than is available to us. Solomon obeyed in areas that didn't affect his desires or his agenda or what he wanted to accomplish in life. He had no problem obeying where it fit his desires, but whenever he wanted something outside of God's agenda, he decided to go for his thing instead of obey God's thing. And, and he did it with rationalization. Don't we all rationalize? I mean, he rationalized. He says, this is what kings of the world do. I mean, if I'm going to compete with the kings of the world and make a name for God, then I'm going to have to compete in their way. I need horses, and I need chariots, and I need soldiers, and I need the best of the best, and I need to get them. And, and he rationalized it. This is what kings of the world do. But he wasn't supposed to be like the kings of the world. He wasn't supposed to be competing with the kings of the world. He was supposed to be representing the one true God of the universe. But you can't represent the God of the universe if you live in disobedience and rebellion to that God. He blew it. And the result in his life of all these little compromises of this disobedience was that it led to loss. Disobedience led to loss. And I, I just have to point this out to you. He didn't disobey because he thought it was going to lead to loss. He disobeyed because he thought it was going to create gain. But disobedience always leads to loss. Look at 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 11. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you've not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you since you've lived in disobedience, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. I'm going to do to your family and you what I did to Saul. You disobeyed me. You're going to lose the profound experience of my purpose for your life. You're going to lose the ability to fulfill the potential I've created in you. You're going to lose the opportunity to experience my promises because disobedience leads to loss. And as I said in the video, if you want to be wiser than Solomon, all you have to do is obey.
If you don't, loss. But there are positive examples of this truth. The degree to which we obey is the degree to which we'll experience God. And for a positive view of this, let's take a trip all the way back to a place, maybe a place you've not heard of, though it's mentioned in the Bible. It's called Lachish. I don't want a God of the possible. To be honest, I don't need that kind of a God. If it's possible, then I can engineer it. And that's why this site right here is so important to me. This is Lachish. It was a gate city to Jerusalem. It was a fortified city to protect against armies breaking through because if they got through here, they got to Jerusalem. They could take down the king. They could take down the city of God. And that's what happened. The brutal Assyrian force under Sennacherib of hundreds of thousands of soldiers broke down this city. I mean, tore it to the ground. 50,000 people lost their lives here, women and kids. It was obliterated. There was no stopping this force. It was the mightiest power on earth. And there was nothing standing in their way to go to Jerusalem and do the same thing. Except for one thing. You see, God's bigger than the mightiest human force. Most people never experience it. Most people never see it because most people don't trust him. But a man named Hezekiah did. He was a king who believed that his God was bigger than the mightiest force on the planet, which gave him a great opportunity to show the world that God was bigger than what's humanly impossible. Oh, he had his soldiers and he had his fortified cities, but they were no match for Sennacherib. So he dropped to his knees and he claimed God's promises. And what happened? This undefeatable army of Sennacherib was destroyed. Close to 200,000 soldiers died. Why? Because God intervened. Sennacherib lost his life. And what happened to Hezekiah? He went on to be a great king in a great city that stood strong. When we really do trust God, he comes true to his promises. He protects his own. In fact, there's a great proverb that says, the horse is prepared for battle, but victory rests with the Lord. Hezekiah was the perfect balance of that. He prepared his soldiers. He prepared his cities. He did everything he could, but they weren't enough. But then victory rested with the Lord. And I'm wondering in this world of ours, where are the Hezekiahs today that understand that God is bigger than what's humanly impossible. And when we live for him, we get to live very different lives. That's what happened at this site. That's what we learned at Lachish. In Lachish, we find the story of Hezekiah and his faith. The story of how a, an impossible circumstance was facing this king of Israel where Sennacherib was going to wipe him out, and yet he stood strong and won. And it was simply because of his faith. And you can read about it in 2 Kings 18 and 19, but what I want you to see is, I want you to see where that power came from, where his experience of God came from. Second Kings chapter 18 verses 5 and 6. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah. Hezekiah stood out from all the others. There were multitudes of kings, but he stood out 
He was, he was different than anyone before him or after him who held the office of king because he held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He obeyed in every area. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses. The degree of our obedience is what ultimately determines the degree of our experience of God. The question is not where is he? The question is where are we? How are we living? It's not is he available? It's are we obeying him, making ourselves available for his power? When it comes to Hezekiah, uh, the Bible says he was careful to obey everything, but it's interesting. Even archaeology, and this is odd, but archaeology has borne out that Hezekiah truly was a man of obedience to God. Archaeology, as you know, is where they dig up old civilizations and they kind of learn about them. And you see, God had given the Israel, the Jews, an interesting command. It's not a moral command that applies to everyone. It's, it's a specific command that was given to his people that they weren't supposed to eat pork. They weren't supposed to eat pigs, right? I mean, it's kind of weird, but it's the way it was. Guess what God's people ate? pigs and pork many of them God said don't and they did anyway they ate it and I mean archaeology can find out the nutritional standards and and kind of ideas of people because it digs them up and one of the things archaeologists found as it goes through different time periods of the Israel culture is that there were a ton of pig bones during a ton of different times of Israel's history. For example, in Joshua's day, archaeology has found the remains of pig bones that indicate that probably around 55% of all of God's people were eating pork. No wonder they weren't experiencing God's power. In Samson's day, it's about 25% of the people eating pork. And, and look, at, come on, let's be honest. They had to have good reasons, like... They loved bacon. That's one. Right? I wouldn't eat pig if I didn't like bacon so much. I mean, that's kind of where they are. And I'm sure they rationalize, what's the big deal anyway? Just pigs. Everyone else is eating them. They're in big supply. And I'm going to tell you, this is the big one. And I hear this a lot in every generation. They say, and if God didn't want us to eat pig, then why did he make pig? I mean, if, they, if, if God's against it, then why did he do that? And you see, there was only one problem. Even though they rationalized all these things out, the problem was God had said not to eat pig. It may have seemed small, but it was an issue of obedience. And let me just tell you, the smallest issue of disobedience is a big thing because in it comes the loss of the experience of God's power and promises and pleasure in our lives. What's the result of disobedience? Loss. They failed to experience God in as profound of ways as they could have. In Hezekiah's day, guess what the percentage of people who ate pork appears to be from archaeology? Zero percent. Because of his commitment to obey, he led God's people to obey, and zero percent pig bones are found. And as the Bible makes clear, he took obedience seriously in big things and small things. He didn't compromise. And what was the result? His obedience led to gain. 
Most people are saying, where is this God? How come he's not showing himself in power? How come he's not revealing his promises to be true? How come he's not making my life profoundly different like he did other people's lives, but not Hezekiah? Hezekiah experienced the profound presence of God in his life because obedience led to gain. Look at 2 Kings 18.7. And the Lord was with him. Why? Because he was obedient. And he was successful in whatever he undertook he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. This man's profound experience of God unleashing his power in his life occurred because of the level of his obedience. Hezekiah experienced God in such profound and powerful ways because of who he was when no one was looking. You know who he was when no one was looking? A man that still obeyed everything God said. And as a result, he experienced God to that degree. Here's the application I want to give you this weekend. If we want to experience God like Hezekiah, if we really want to experience God's blessings, the fullness of his presence and power and promises and provision and pleasure in our lives, we need to make the choice to obey. And we need to make the choice to obey in every area of our lives. We can't rationalize some things as little, some things as small, and other things as big. We can't rationalize that we're obeying in most areas, so that makes up for the areas that we're disobeying in. It didn't work for Solomon, and it won't work for us. Look at James chapter 1, verses 22 and 25. Do not merely listen to the word of God and so deceive yourselves. If all you do is hear it and listen to it and do nothing with it, what a waste of time. He says, but instead, when you hear it, do what it says. The man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to obey it, to do it, not forgetting what he's heard God say, but actually lives it, obeys it, does it, that's the person who will be blessed in what he does. So we live in a generation like every other generation where most of us say, where is this God? How come he's not showing up in such big ways in our life? How come we're not seeing him work in such miraculous ways in our lives? How come we're not experiencing his presence and his touch like some of these people did? And the answer is simple because God never shows up that way in the life of people who disobey because disobedience pushes him away, pushes him away. We need to obey. When we fail to obey God, it keeps us from experiencing him in the very ways that we long to experience him in. And it's not just the big issues of obedience that matter. It's the small things. In fact, in my life, I have found that my most significant failures were determined by all the little teeny choices I made up until those failures. The small things lead to the big things. We need to obey so when we're not experiencing God, here's what we need to be asking ourselves. Not where is he, what's wrong with God, but where are we? We need to be asking ourselves when we're not experiencing him, where am I one click off? Where am I not adjusting my life to his will? Where am I not living in obedience to his truth? And it can be a very small thing, seemingly. In my life, I... You know, I find that often the area of disobedience that comes first in my life is to push God to second, third, and fourth place. You know, there's a command in the Bible, Matthew 6, seek first God and his kingdom and his ways, his righteousness. Seek God first and, and, you know, he will make sure everything lines up in the way that it's supposed to in your life. But often, like the people he was talking to, 
I just get a little bit too busy doing the stuff of life to seek him first. I get a little bit busy even doing the work of God instead of, you know, pursuing God himself. And, and I start pursuing the things that only God can give me instead of him himself. And as a result, I miss his touch and I miss his presence and I miss his promises. And it's an issue of disobedience. If I'm too busy for God, if I'm not seeking him first, I won't find him. God tells us that we're supposed to serve one another. I mean, this is a command. In the world, people serve themselves, but Christians, believers, are supposed to serve one another. But, but I don't know about you, but it's pretty easy to, to say, you know, I've served enough. Time to take care of me. And when we start doing that, what we're doing is we're literally living in disobedience. It's like building a horse stall in Megiddo for, for Solomon. This isn't a big deal. Everybody's doing it. But the minute we start disobeying, we, we literally are pushing God to the outskirts of our lives. God says that we're supposed to forgive one another as he's forgiven us. And yet, we human beings, it's interesting, we're willing to forgive a lot of stuff, but there are some things that have happened and been done to us that, that just we're just unwilling to forgive. It's too egregious. We're unwilling to let it go. And so we start rationalizing that no one would forgive this, and so we withhold forgiveness. And what happens is we're dismissing God and his presence from our lives because we're living in disobedience. It seems like a small thing. It seems normal, but it's killing us. God commands us to continue growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, but more often than not, we kind of stall out and get stagnant and don't keep growing and moving ahead and making new points of sacrifice and new points of surrender and it's just an issue of disobedience. God commands us to give. In fact, if he says if we don't give, then we're robbing him. And we rationalize, oh, well, you know, I need it more than the church and God can just make more money. I can't. I need it more than him and I need this and I need and what we do is we fall in love with what God provides our resources instead of with God himself and we rationalize it we justify it it seems like a small thing but what we're saying is God I don't need your power your presence your provision in my life I'll do it on my own thank you which is why we don't see him showing up could be just simply not faithfully gathering together you know the habit of most people is to do church once in a while when it's convenient here in Michigan if it's too cold, you'll wait till it's warm. When it's too warm, you'll wait till it's cold. When it's raining, you'll wait till it's sunshiny. But when it's sunshiny, it's too nice of weather to go to church. And so we make it to church once in a while. But you know what God commands? We need to get together and stir each other up to love and good works. We need to not forsake the gathering of ourselves together faithfully as the manner of some is. And we need to do it more and more as we see the day approaching. And yet we do it less and less and we rationalize we don't know it is. No big deal and all that stuff. But, but you see, what we're doing is just pushing God to the outskirts. We're deciding what's important or not and we're just disobeying him. Could be that we're not being careful when it comes to issues of sexual purity and lust. We're just disobeying and wondering why God's not showing up. Here's the question I want to ask you. It's really challenged me. Hopefully it'll challenge you. What will people find when they discover the buried remnants of your life? What will people discover when they find the buried remnants of your life? Now, another way to say it would be, what are your hidden pig bones? What are your stalls? 
Maybe another way to say it, very contemporary 21st century thing to say would be, what would people discover if they could unbury the things you've cleared from your internet history? Ouch. Some of you smart alecks are saying nothing. I use private browsing. Oh, that works. Here's the fact we need to understand. There will be a day when God unearths and God judges all the hidden remnants of our lives. There's going to be a day that God unearths and judges every single hidden remnant of our lives. Look at Ecclesiastes 12:14. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Look at 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's heart. At the time, each will receive his praise from God. Here's the reality. God's going to one day uncover the hidden reality of our lives, but we're already experiencing the consequence of those hidden realities. Loss. We wonder why we're not experiencing God in more profound ways. We wonder why God's not using us like he has other people. We're wondering why we don't get to experience his presence and his touch and his promises. We wonder all this, and it all goes to the fact that there are these hidden things of disobedience, these small compromises that we've rationalized and we justified and we don't think it's a big deal and everyone else is doing them. And think about this, that's why everyone else isn't experiencing God either. That's why there's only one Hezekiah, only one Moses, and one Elijah. There are so few because there have been so few willing to profoundly obey God, the choice is ours. And I've got some bad news for you. Some bad news. We've all blown it. In other words, we've all been like Solomon. We've all compromised in little and big things. We've all lived in disobedience. I mean, look what God says in 1 John 1, 8 and 10. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim we've not sinned, we make God to be a liar and his word has no place in us. We've all blown it. We've all rationalized and compromised, which if you put this talk together, you'll go, we really don't have any hope, do we? Because you see, the degree of our obedience determines the degree of our experience of God and his blessings and we've all blown it and if we're honest we've all blown it big time which means that's all I'm going to experience of God no wonder I'm getting what I'm getting but that's where we realize that when it comes to the truth of of God towards us and the truth of our lives before God we have to be honest about the bad news, and I hate it that so many churches and so many spiritual teachers are trying to pretend there is no bad news. They're trying to tell us everything's good when everything's not good. You're okay, I'm okay, we're all okay. It doesn't matter what you do, what I do, it's all good. God's just grace and all that different stuff. The problem with making out that there's no bad news is that if you don't acknowledge the bad news, you can never experience the good news. But there is good news. The bad news is none of us will ever experience any part of God on our own because all of us have disobeyed profoundly all sin and fall short of God's glory. But the good news is that we can all be forgiven. Every single one of us. 
This is why Jesus came. A lot of people don't understand, how come Jesus is the only way to God? How come Jesus is the only way? That sounds kind of narrow. The reason Jesus is the only way is because Jesus is the only human being who's ever put his two, foot, two feet on this planet and never disobeyed in one area of his life. Jesus was perfect. No small compromises, no buried remnants, no pig bones, no private browsing. Jesus was perfect. He was defined by obedience. The wages of sin is death, and yet Jesus died on that cross. Why? Because he was taking our place. Our sin deserved death, not God. His life deserved God, not death. But he swapped places with us, and when he was buried and rose again, it was so that in him, not on our own, not through religion, but in him, we could be defined not by our disobedience. In him, we can be defined by his obedience. There's only one way we can know God's promises and presence and power and provision and pleasure in our life. It's not based upon our lives because we're disobedient and disobedience never experienced God. It's based upon Jesus' life. And in him, God sees us as obedient. And so he pours his promises out in our lives. But to experience that, we have to acknowledge our need. Look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the word if is really important there. If we confess our sins. You know what Solomon did? He rationalized his sins. This isn't a big deal. All the kings do it. You know what the people with the pig bones did? They, they rationalized their sins. Come on, God made pigs. Everything's okay. Everybody else is doing it. It's no big deal. You know, the sun hasn't propelled into the earth and ruined everything. Everything's okay. They rationalized, and so they never experienced God as they could. You know what Hezekiah did? He acknowledged it. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you? Interesting thing about that verse is that verse is written to people who have already followed Jesus because God knows that though we have followed Jesus in our past and asked him to forgive us in our past, in our present, many of us have made small compromises. We've started living in disobedience. We've started walking away from him. And though we have full access to him and his power because of Jesus, we don't experience any of him or any of his power because of our disobedience. We're determining the degree of our experience And so he says, so what you have to do is you have to acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge that you've gone off track. You need to confess it to him and let him forgive you. And I believe many of us who are believers aren't experiencing God in any way because we're living in disobedience. We have to confess it. We have to get it right or we'll never experience God as he wants to have us experience him. But some of you here Maybe you're listening online or you're here. You've never experienced his touch in your life. You've never experienced his his provision of forgiveness. You've never, ever experienced a life defined by obedience, and so you've never experienced him. It starts when you come and confess. And so before I give you the action step, I'm just going to invite you to pray with me. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite you to take the words of my prayer, and you don't have to say them out loud, but in your heart, make them your Hearts cry to God. And so before we turn to the action step, bow with me in a word of prayer and just pray this way. Just say, God, I confess my sin. 
the hidden areas of disobedience in my life, the compromises that have resulted in loss, I've lost you. But I'm putting my trust in Jesus. You died on the cross for my sin. I'm confessing my sin and asking you to forgive me. I'm putting my faith in your resurrection so that my life can be defined by obedience so I can know your power in my life. I trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you just prayed with me, I really want to encourage you, please let us know. Uh, We don't want to be rude in your life, obnoxious, jump in where we don't belong, but we want to share with you information about how you can take next steps in your relationship with God, but we have to know you prayed. And so in our services, we hand out these programs, and all you have to do is take out the connection card inside and fill it out so we can get the information to you. Check the circle at the bottom that says you prayed to receive Jesus with me, and as you're leaving our services, there are boxes at every exit. Throw it in there. We'll send you that information. And really encourage you, check out in the lobby of our churches the starting point ministries because it's a great way to build the foundation of your relationship with God. And if you're watching online, hit the what next button. We'll do the same thing for you. Here's how I want to end this weekend experience in Origins. I want to focus in on one verse. It's 1 John 5, verse 3. 1 John 5, 3. This is love for God, to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. This is love for God, to obey his commands. He doesn't say, this is love for God. Show up at a really fun and cool church and sing songs about the love of God. That'll do it. That's not it. This is the love of God. Just say I love you God a lot. That that doesn't do it. This is the love of God. To obey his commands. You know what's interesting? Solomon said he loved God. He just didn't obey him. You know what the problem with the mass of people in this world? Some of them say, hey, I love God. It's just they don't obey him. The reason there are so few Hezekiahs in this world is because there are so few people that truly love God enough to obey him. How about you? And then it says, and his commands are not burdensome. I mean, when you really love God profoundly, it's not a burden to obey him. It's a privilege to obey him. But that's not generally how we feel, which is why we so often make the small compromises and go our own way, because we think our way is better than his ways. This is the love of God, to obey his commands and his commands are not burdensome. Here's your action step. Start showing your love for God by joyfully obeying him in every area of your life. Start showing your love for God by joyfully obeying him. And what will happen? You'll stop asking the question, where is the God of the Bible? And you'll start walking with and experiencing the God of the Bible. You'll stop wondering why he's not showing up and you'll start experiencing his transforming power when he does. And the choice is yours. Because the degree to which you obey is the degree to which you'll experience God and his blessings. And my prayer is that all of us will choose to obey. So glad you were here. Thanks everybody. See you next time.